Hey, Element from whenever or wherever you are watching from. Now, as we start today, I just wanted to say something up front about all the stuff that is going on in our country. Uh, a few months ago, uh, there were a lot of riots in our country with different things happening. And way back then, I said this thing to a few people. I said that we should ask the question, why? Why are people feeling this way to do the things that they do? Now, their answers to the question why may not be things that you want to agree with, but we need to take a step back and ask the question, really, why? What's going on? Why do people feel the way that they do? And I had people from different sides of the political aisle, some say, that's great, we should do that, and some be like, why do you want to do that? Because we need to be people who step back and realize that we are all fallen and broken, and God is the one who is good. And if we're good to preach anything, it needs to be the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, last week and into this week, certain things are happening again. And I would say that same question. We still need to take a step back and ask, why? You know, why do people feel the need to do the things that they are doing? Whether you agree with what they're doing or not, if we take a step back and we ask the question why, maybe we can help to understand one another a little bit better. Rather than seeing people around us we disagree with as the other, as people who are totally in the wrong that we cannot stand, maybe we'd realize that we are all in the same boat. We are all fallen and broken and we all need redemption. Our goal in the world today is not to preach ourselves or our morality or our politics. Not that at some point those things don't become important. But first and foremost, we must be about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the sovereignty of who God is, and to understand that people around us are not the other. They're not less than we are. We are all people that God loves and calls into his family in terms of redemption and grace. And those of us who call Christ our Savior, Savior, who call ourselves Christians, are those who are meant to step into the world as his ambassadors, as his hands and feet, to proclaim the good news of the gospel. And if we view those around us as less than us, as so much different than us that we can never relate, we're never going to be in a position to truly share the gospel in ways that make sense. So let's be a people who step back and be honest enough to ask the question why, even again, if we disagree with the answers, to be able to say this is what the gospel speaks about and to lead people to the foot of the cross and all that we say and do. Because until we come to see the whole world as needing Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we're going to continue to run in these veins of separating from one another and staying broken as we are. Let's be a people who come under the banner of Christ and lift him up in all that we do first that proclaim the good news of the gospel. Now, saying that, I'll go to a little lighter note and that new kids' boxes are out this week. And if you are a parent and you want to do some kids' notes and lessons with them, uh, you can swing by Element to the little repository box we have them in, or you can actually sign up to have them delivered to your home so that your kids can have lessons that they go through as well. In the middle of the message today, we're going to put up a slide, and that slide is going to have a question on it. And you can pause the live stream, answer the question, take care of your kids, get a couple 
up a copy, maybe go a little bit deeper into what we're talking about today, because in what we talk about, it might help us in the terms of kind of what our country is going through a little bit as well today. Uh, if you have a smart device, you can download this app. It is called Uversion. You click on more and then events in Uversion, and we will come up by GPS in your smart device if you're in our local area. If you're not, you type in the zip code 93455, and then we will come up and you'll get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, really everything that goes with today's message. Uh, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors at Element, and if you're so inclined, wherever you are, you can stand with me for the reading of God's Word. And this is John chapter 4, verse 42, and it says, They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we ask that you would take us as a people and teach us to understand that you are the Savior of the world. Not our politics and not our morality, but who you are. And that you would lead us into relationship with you. That we would understand the gospel so deeply that it would change our lives and how we see everything around us. Teach us to walk in this world so that you gain great glory as we walk in that joy that you consistently provide to us. Amen. Amen. So we are doing this newer series called The Greatest Story Ever Retold. When we came into 2021, COVID is you know, still very prevalent, and we wanted to do a church-wide journey close to Easter and through this thing called Lent. Now, Lent is normally 40 days. We're going to do a Lent journey as we get close to Easter that is going to be eight weeks eight weeks. And this is going to be through, you know, different understandings of the sovereignty of God and who he is and what he calls us into. We are even going to ask you to give something up for the Lent time, but that'll be coming in a, in a couple of weeks when we get there. Now, that's going to start, as I said, eight weeks before Easter. So I was looking at what am I going to do those five to six weeks before we start that Lent journey. And I have all these little notes and things in my computer that in this folder actually called the can, just little things that I've written down and I really liked and thought could go different places and I never used them. So this is whittling down things in my can, the greatest story ever retold, certain things that we've seen and read through the scriptures that maybe could be looked at from a little different perspective so we can understand them better and deeper and what God is calling us to. Now today's message is going to tie in with last week a little bit, because last week we talked about Jesus coming, redeeming us, and bringing us into his family. Many people today will look at the Bible as a set of moral rules to live your life by, but the scripture is really the story about our sin and our rebellion and God's grace and redemption and bringing us back home again, about belonging and rescue into God's family. One of the important things to understand about the Bible and sin and the fall and all those things that happen early in the book of Genesis. Genesis is none of that was about God's rejection of us as a people. We are the ones who actually rejected God himself. If God was just about rejecting us, God would have never come into the garden after the fall in Genesis 3:15 and promised himself to come and rescue us. I mean, that's kind of the most one of the most amazing things you see in the beginning of the scriptures. We reject God, we want run away from him, and God comes to us and he calls out to us, and he promises himself to be the one to come and rescue and redeem us. 
Now, there are lots of places in the Bible where God does reject certain things, like improper worship or improper sacrifices, but he doesn't reject humanity. In the Old Testament, you see that God has a king called Saul, and eventually God will reject Saul as king because of certain things that Saul did that were evil, but God doesn't reject Saul as an image bearer of who he is. God wants to redeem Saul. God wants to bring Saul back into relationship with him. And so you see all these places in the scripture where God is constantly calling us to restored relationship with himself. It is the idea that we belong nowhere else in all of the universe than in relationship with God himself. And that is what we need to speak about when we speak about the gospel, when we speak about the good news of what God is doing in the world. And in going with last week, I want to talk to you today about these ideas of rejection and acceptance and God calling us in and reconciliation with that idea also of belonging. We're going to mostly do that by looking at this story in John chapter 4 called the woman at the well. You can actually open your Bibles there, but it's going to take a bit before we actually get there. I would like you to understand that we have to understand this idea of acceptance and belonging is spoken of all throughout the scriptures. Even somebody like the Apostle Paul, who spent much of his life, since he just went through Acts, he spent much of his life on the road going to different places. But Paul, in all these places, searched for deep, meaningful connection. Paul will leverage that Roman infrastructure to make sure that he can stay connected. We can also leverage our current infrastructure in great and positive ways, these things called the internet in order to be able to stay together even in the midst of COVID. Now, a lot of people, when they stay in places a really short time, they get afraid of connection because they hate getting connected and then leaving. Like we have Vandenberg Air Force Base right next to us. And many times at Vandenberg, people are going to be stationed for six months. After a lot of those short stationings, sometimes people are like, I don't want to connect. I don't want to go through the issues of having to leave the friends that I have made in these places. But people like the Apostle Paul would tell you that the more transient we are, the more, the more we have to look at what it means to actually be connected, how to, how to put down roots with certain people because it's very important to us. I think sometimes the most transient and mobile need to be the most intentional about relationships. Paul grew attached to all of these churches that he had planted throughout the Mediterranean, and Paul stayed connected many times through this thing called letter writing that could get to these places because of these Roman roads. And it's why today we have so many New Testament copies of these manuscripts that people like Paul wrote. He was intentional about staying connected because he saw the people around him, the church of Christ, as a family. In Genesis 3.22, after man falls out of relationship with God because of our own rebellion and rejection of him, we read certain words that have caused a firestorm in theology even to this day. Genesis 3.22 says this, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now again, this is after the fall. And those words go to a couple things. First off, what we talked about last week, uh, the, the Trinity, when God talks about us, we see God as a triune God. And the second thing is a proper understanding of the biblical narrative and the Hebrew language that is written there. With all the nuances that take place, when God says these words, it's the understanding that man is not like God, but now man, because of the sin in his life, is going to be lonely. He no longer has the connection and relationship, not just with God, but also with the rest of creation around him. He has become separated. It is the idea that man is now going to become like a lonely one upon the earth. God knew that because of man's sin that man would become lonely and that is a thing that God has already said is not good. 
Again, this happens not because God rejected man, but because man rejected God. And because of this thing called sin, man could not enter into relationship with God. He couldn't enter into his presence. And so God comes in the person of Christ, dies for our sins, to take our sins away, to restore us to relationship with himself again. It all is what we call the gospel. God rescuing and saving us as a people. For us, though, rejection is something that lurks deep within the human heart. Everywhere we go, really, everything we do, it kind of sits in the back of it. We assume that people around us are ready just to get rid of us. It's why some people become bitter and angry and push other people away before they think those people can push them away. It's this innate form of fallenness that we have within us. And we constantly bring things upon ourselves because of it. We always want to run from God and run from one another because I think we're afraid of rejection. Douglas Stone and Sheila Heen wrote a book called Thanks for the Feedback. And they note in this book how we face rejection all the time. They name some pretty common things, like they will say that many kids hoping to get into college apply to a bunch and they get a ton of rejection letters, like, why doesn't the college want me? They say 40 million people have signed up for dating websites every single year, and yet many of them the following year still remain single, and they feel like they have been rejected. The year they wrote the book, they said 500,000 entrepreneurs open stores for the first time, and yet in that same year, 600,000 stores close their doors people rejected them. They said the year they wrote the book, there was a quarter million weddings called off. How's that for rejection? They said 877,000 spouses filed for divorce the year they wrote the book, and that's even higher actually back during COVID. Have you ever tried out for a team and didn't get on it? You ever go out on the recess playground and you're going to go play dodgeball and you're the last one picked for a team? You ever apply for a job and you didn't get it? Like there are certain clothes that I would personally love to wear, but I don't because I would be rejected and made fun of. Like I think they should make guy capris. And even just saying that, some of you are rejecting me right now for just saying those words. From the time we are born, our very survival depends on our parents' acceptance of us. And scientists now say that we are exceptionally attuned to our perceptions of rejection. There's even a study that they did of daycare kids, and they found the younger that kids go into daycare, the harder that they will end up dealing with rejection. Many kids, when they've been away from their parents for a long time, they found that they will act like when their parents show up, the kids are distracted, they're playing something, they don't notice their parents are actually there, they don't run towards them, they don't smile. And I don't know how they did this, maybe put diodes on the kids to figure out what's actually going on, but when they did these studies, they found that internally, when the parents actually did show up, even though the kids acted like they didn't care, their pulse accelerated, and all of a sudden their blood pressure rose because they were excited that their parents were there, but they were training their bodies not to betray it just in case the parents had to leave again and didn't pick them up because they didn't want to deal with the rejection. Little kids did this without even being conscious of it. It was effortless, and it's, and it's very sad. One writer says that when rejection embeds itself deeply enough in a person, it starts to turn into shame. And then he says, and shame is self-condemnation. It is internal rejection. Lewis Smedes writes that shame is a very heavy feeling. And sometimes where guilt can make us feel bad about something that we have done, some action, what shame does is it makes us feel bad about who we are. Shame and rejection come in and they touch the core of our identity. And it makes us believe lies, not just about ourselves, but what God himself has said about us. 
Today we are a people who try to hide any sort of embarrassment. You ever trip on something or run into something you weren't looking at or bonk your head into a pole? The first thing we do is go to make sure nobody saw it when we did it. And if somebody did, we're like, oh, we're, we're, we're so embarrassed. You know, We try to look perfect and then act like we don't care that we're trying to look perfect. We try to hide, again, our embarrassment. We try to please those around us. We're acting like we don't really care if they're pleased. We run from rejection at every turn. We run from shame at every turn. Gershon Kaufman wrote, shame is without parallel, a sickness of the soul, a violation of our essential dignity. And John Ortberg wrote, the good news is there is healing, but it only comes from finding an acceptance greater than our greatest rejection. Now, right here, this is kind of early in the message, but I want to put my question here because it's going to go into all the rest we're going to talk about today. Here's my question. Where do you feel you have been rejected? And kind of along with that, is there something where a place in your life where you feel you've been rejected that even to this day you still deal with? That maybe in your darkest moments or maybe in your best moments that kind of rears its ugly head all the time and just kind of speaks to you. Oh, look, here is your rejection. And you keep falling back into that. And I know this is a much heavier question than we did last week of, hey, what's a family? This is a much heavier question, but I think it's a very important one for who we are as a people as we stand before God himself. Now, open your Bibles to John chapter 4 if you haven't gotten there already. And this is the story that we call the woman at the well. It's a story of wells and women and Jesus, but I want to hopefully look at it from a different angle a little bit. Uh, Most of the time we look at the story from the woman's perspective, and we are going to do that. But I also want to look at it from Jesus' perspective as well, because Jesus in the story is going to bring that greater acceptance than her biggest rejection. I think as he does for all of us. Uh, John chapter 4, starting in verse 5, says, So he, that's Jesus, came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. So again, this starts with Jesus, because it's his story about who he is. And there's an interesting detail that a lot of people just kind of skip over. And that's the idea that Jesus was tired. You know, leaders, especially leaders like Jesus, they're always supposed to be on and have so much energy and never be down. But here, Jesus is tired. John most likely writes this at the end of his life. So John is an old man thinking back on this incident. And one of the things that stands out to him is that Jesus was tired. Really the only one of the group. Like the disciples are all, okay, great, you rest. We're going to go get some lunch. See ya. And, And they go walking off. Now, how did they know Jesus was tired? Jesus probably said, oh, hey, I'm tired. It's not that hard, but, you know, but he's open. He is honest about what he is going through. He is completely real. He doesn't try to hide it. He doesn't try to act like nothing phases or bothers him. This isn't superhero Jesus. This is the tired Jesus. And what God is going to do is use this to make a difference, not just in the woman, but also her entire village. And I think hopefully us today as well. John chapter four, verse seven, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Water gathering is very important uh, in this time, and water gathering was always women's work. Uh, It still is in a lot of places in society today. If a family is wealthy, a servant would go. If they were poor, one of the family would go and do it, but it was always a woman who would go. They would usually either go early in the morning or in the evening when it was cooler because in the middle, in the noonday sun, it was very hot. Nobody really wanted to do it at that point. But about noon, when nobody else wanted to do it, here comes this woman. Now, Jesus is a rabbi sitting next to the well. What do you think she thinks Jesus will do when he sees her? She thinks he's going to move away. 
uh, usually about 20 paces, because that's what would happen at the time, about 20 paces is the norm, that he will not look at her, he will not engage with her, that she will get her water, and she will leave. Now, here comes the kind of the retold portion of the story, because the weirdest thing happens. Uh, Jesus doesn't move 20 paces away. He also doesn't ignore her. What he does is he asks her for some water. Now, I know when you read the text, it's not going to sound like he's asking, but this, real, this is really asking in the Greek. <laughs> Verse 7 again, Jesus said to her, give me a drink. This is not like, woman, make me a sandwich. This in the Greek really is Jesus asking for a drink of water. Go to verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink for me, a woman of Samaria? See, the woman knows how crazy this is. John even says, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. I mean, we don't see it, but Jesus here is really making a ridiculous request. In this culture, drinking water at a well this way is an invitation to connect. Uh, Robert Alter, one of the leading Bible interpreters, says that Jesus' request for water, when the early readers would see this, it's a loaded story because it could almost be seen as a pickup line. Now, there are no bars in the ancient world, no Match.com, uh, no, no Tinder. All the boy met girl stories, they would happen around wells. Kind of like a Western, right? You got the white hat and the black hat and the good guy and the bad guy. You know, at some point in the Western, a showdown's going to be coming. Or you got a sleepaway camp slasher movie and someone's like, oh, I'll be right back. Well, you know they're not coming back. Or you're watching Star Trek and a bunch of red shirts go down to a planet. And then, you know, you know they're not beaming back up. You just know how the end of the story is going to go. Readers would recognize this type of the story. This is a story all throughout the Old Testament. Uh, you know, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Rachel, Moses and Zipporah, all couples in the Old Testament who met at a well. But this story is about the wrong place. It's Samaria. It's the wrong time. It is noon. It is the wrong woman, a Samaritan, and obviously the wrong boy. It's Jesus. And this is why we're doing it retold. In this day, men didn't speak to women in public, even their wives. A man, especially a rabbi, wouldn't speak to a woman, and especially a Samaritan woman. Like in the commentary uh, called the Mishnah, Mishnah is commentary in the Old Testament and rabbinical law. Uh, in the Mishnah it says, Samaritan women are deemed mistrants from the cradle. Mistrants is... is a period. I, we never want to talk about periods in church, but whatever. It's, it's the idea that this thing that makes someone unclean, they are unclean from the cradle. That's what they say about Samaritan women. They are rejected as a people, and women especially. And yet Jesus is here having a conversation with her. You will see through Jesus' ministry, he had this huge soft spot for Samaritans. Jesus tells the parable in the story called the Good Samaritan, where the Samaritan is the hero of the story. Jesus will heal ten people with lepers and only one of them, a Samaritan, will come back and say thank you. Jesus, on different occasions, had to defend Samaritans from his own disciples. Jesus never rejected them, and that actually led to a rumor. In John chapter 8, verse 48, the Jews said, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? I mean, that's, that's an insult. It's like a couple boys hanging out on the playground and one says, you throw a ball like a girl. I mean, that's an insult. Not, no, I mean, we all know that some girls can throw a ball better than a boy. I mean, my, my wife and I, when we were dating, we played basketball together. She beat me every single time because she's way more athletic than me. Anyway, whatever. Jesus tells her that God is on a rescue mission for you. He engages her. You are not rejected. God loves you. And God has living water that he wants to give to you. And he alone can quench your weary and thirsty soul. 
Verse 13 of John 4, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband what you have said is true now this seems kind of weird in our culture today as we look at how this interchange takes place but Jesus is not rejecting her in any way by the things that that he says she's being truthful but a little bit evasive with him I have no husband and this is what I told you last week that Jesus tends to be able to put his finger on the things that we are always trying to hide the thing that keeps us coming from coming out and being known by one another he calls people out into the open to be healed you'll see this in different places you have this tax collector named Zacchaeus short little guy's got to climb in a tree to see Jesus over a crowd and Jesus walks to the crowd and talks to him and restores him this guy who has been rejected by his people by his own choices and Jesus goes and restores this man and changes his heart and his life you have Thomas who we call doubting Thomas at sometimes it almost seems like he is arrogant about his doubting and what does Jesus do he shows up he speaks to Thomas he restores Thomas you have a woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8 and Jesus doesn't say the adultery is okay He tells her to go and sin no more, but he also doesn't reject her. He calls her in to be redeemed and restored. Peter denies Jesus three times. What does Jesus do? He goes and he finds finds Peter after the resurrection, and he speaks to him, talks about how Peter rejected him, and restores him. You have to understand, in this culture, a woman could not divorce a man. And so when Jesus says that you have had five husbands, he's probably pointing out the thing in her life where she feels most rejected. She has been rejected over and over and over and over and over. Five times she has been rejected. She probably got married each time thinking, well, hopefully this will be the one. But five times different men have said to her, I don't want you any longer. And now she is currently with a person who's not her husband. It's most like a relationship that borders on slavery, where sexual relations is a part of his prerogative. It is sad. She is broken. She is ostracized. It's why she comes to the well at noon, because she'd rather face the heat of the noonday sun than all the scorn and rejection of all the people in her village. Rejection hurts. Literally, it hurts. The National Academy of Sciences published a study that showed the same system in us that registers physical pain also registers the pain of rejection. And what Jesus does is he points out the woman's greatest point of rejection, but he does not condemn her. He speaks the truth to her, but doesn't condemn her. And we have to understand today that there is a chasm. There's supposed to be a chasm between truth and condemnation. But for some reason today, we don't see that there's a chasm between the two. And every time we hear truth, we automatically think it's condemnation. And it's not. It's not. Like, when I go to my dentist, my dentist doesn't understand the difference between truth and condemnation. It's all the same thing. I go in, and he condemns me. He says, you aren't flossing enough. Your teeth are going to fall out. Way to go, dummy. He, he's you know, like the woman's village. I'm like the woman at the well when I go to the dentist. I, I don't like it. What Jesus does is he names the truth, but he does not condemn her. Jesus names her rejection, what she's hiding. But in doing so, he doesn't back away. He engages her. 
And then what she does in return is she starts to engage him. And what you will find in John 4 is the longest conversation Jesus had in any of the gospel accounts with any person. And it's this woman right here. Now, eventually what will happen is the disciples will come back. The disciples don't talk to the woman because, hey, she's supposed to be rejected. They probably stay at least 20 paces away from her. But they're also watching Jesus not reject her. I read this book a couple years ago. It was called, I Like You If You Are More Like Me. And the author notes that in Australia, on large cattle ranches, you can keep cattle together in two different ways. One way is you can build a fence so they're all corralled in. And another way is you can build a big well of water right in the middle, and they all just naturally come to that. And what Jesus is doing here is he is digging a well, a well really of living water based on God's call of restoration. The religious leader in Jesus' day and many religious people in our day, what we do is we build fences. We love to build fences to keep the undesirables out and the good people in and show them what they're supposed to do. Like the rabbis in Jesus' day, when they built fences, they'd build a fence around the law. Well, the law says, don't commit adultery. So they would extend that fence out and say, so don't talk to a woman, don't look at a woman, don't don't touch a woman. And in this book, the author says this, rejection builds fences and acceptance digs wells. And that's a great point in understanding the retold story. Last week, I talked about Romans fifteen seven, where Paul says to welcome one another. The word welcome is also the word accept. Jesus digs wells of living water. He invites her in, this rejected woman, to be part of his family. She is the poster child for rejection. She is the wrong gender, the wrong ethnicity, the wrong religion, the wrong morality, the wrong relational status. And yet, she meets Jesus at a well. And Jesus invites her in and loves her. And then she doesn't even seem to notice the rejection of the disciples around her. And Jesus says, go home and get your non-husband and come back. And instead, she goes into town and she tells everybody. She invites everyone. Because at this point, what's the worst that could happen? She has found an acceptance that is greater than her biggest rejection. She's experienced the worst she ever could from her village, so why not now just talk about who Jesus is and this living water and this great acceptance that she has found in him? Verse 28 of John chapter 4. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I, have ever, all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Can this be the Messiah? Can this be the one that we're all looking for? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. She tells them, he said everything I ever did, and yet, in the end, he didn't reject me. This might be the first sermon ever preached by a Christian. And what is the sermon? The sermon is, come and see, come and see, taste and see the Lord is good. She is enthusiastic, she is vulnerable. He told me everything I ever did, and again, he didn't reject me. Her message is Jesus-centered, it is effective, and it is given by a five times over divorcee who was shacked up with her boyfriend, not enough money to pay someone to go get her water, Samaritan. And the amazing thing is from the people in her village who rejected her probably so much, she didn't get another rejection. She got a big old yes, and they all went out of the city to see and meet Jesus. Verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. They believed because Jesus, again, spoke the truth, but didn't reject her. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. That is also Jesus not rejecting them. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. 
I think it's interesting how every time I kind of talk to this section of Scripture, I think, okay, that's it. I've covered it all. And then I read something else that sparks something in me. I'm like, oh, my goodness, I'm going to talk through that again because there's always something new in the Scriptures. Do you ever wonder what happened when the whole town came out? Because this most likely would have included all of this woman's exes. And as she's standing next to Jesus going, that's number one, that's number two, that's number five. Hey, that turn the other cheek thing, they need that. Can you tell, talk to them about that? And that's number six. Maybe you could tell him if he wants to keep it, he's got to put a ring on it. Something like that. In all seriousness, God has a way of taking all of our mistakes and our biggest failures and our deepest wounds and our biggest rejections and our ugliest scars, and he uses them to bring about some sort of ministry where we get to become messengers of God's grace and reconciliation and belonging and family. We get to be a people who speak of the gospel and what it has done in our own lives. Jesus speaks salvation into our sin-soaked and sin-stained, weary spirits. Because we need a redemption and acceptance bigger than our greatest rejection. And we have that in the gospel. We must be a people who come to a place like this woman where we see that Jesus is more than just a wonderful teacher. He's more than a role model. Uh, even I would say more than maybe just a Messiah, that he is the Savior of the world. J.A. Finley quotes Ephraim the Syrian from the 4th century, and he said this, First she caught sight of a thirsty man, then a Jew, then a rabbi, afterwards a prophet, last of all the Messiah. She tried to get the better of the thirsty man, she showed dislike of the Jew, she heckled the rabbi, but she was swept off her feet by the prophet, and she adored the Christ. Because Jesus brought her in and reconciled her. Open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. Today, there's lots of people who tell you how to get rid of your rejection or, or your shame and all those things. Like psychologists will tell you that just you need to lower uh, your expectations for your life, you know, down to what your abilities actual, actually are. They say you've got to persuade yourself that you're fine just like you are. But you know what? That's never going to work. It is never going to work because we cannot just dilute our ideals because we can't fool our hearts. We, we can't fool what we know we are really supposed to be and who God calls us to be. We cannot make ourselves acceptable. Even the most moral people on the planet feel this inward pull of their own unworthiness. The only answer in our lives is, as Lewis Smead says, is a spiritual experience of grace. The, the experience of being accepted is the beginning of healing for the feeling of being unacceptable. As when we see Jesus' acceptance of us, how he has chased us down, he has loved and called and redeemed us, we can finally face the false self that we portray to everybody else. And many times we even portray to ourselves the false self that we hide behind all of our lives. And we can truly live our true selves, the one that God calls us to show to the world, because God has called us to himself. And we can live out in ways of honesty and truth with our real history, our real choices, our real successes, and our real failures, our real rejections, and our real shame. That we can be known and loved by the one who made us, by the one who calls us to himself. We can be restored to who God made us to be. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. So we are. Verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is, because He sees us as we are. Now, in the Roman world, the ultimate form of rejection was a cross. 
When people stuck, it was all about shame and rejection when you were stuck upon a cross. We are told in Isaiah 53 verse 5 that Jesus would be despised and rejected. And really, when we look at the cross and Jesus dying, that is society rejecting God himself. And we look throughout the scriptures. The scriptures aren't a story just about this woman and us first and foremost. It is about Jesus. The most rejected person in the, in the Bible and in the history of the world is Jesus himself. God himself is the most rejected person. Jesus knows the pain of rejection. And the amazing thing is at the cross of Christ, the, our rejection of God and Christ's acceptance of us comes together by a miracle of his grace. God makes the world. Humanity runs away, but God chases us down. And through the gospel, Christ's death and resurrection, God brings the world back. God has invited us to meet him at his well of living water for restoration and true life. This comes about because of the gospel, that we would understand that we are a people who have been saved by what God himself has done, that God has not rejected us. Too often we reject him, but God has not rejected us. And guys, this is so important for, again, for where our country is today. So often we want to reject one another around us because they don't meet up to what we want them to do. We have to take a step back and look at what God did to rescue and save us. That we are a people who have rejected one another. We are a people who have rejected God himself. And yet we need to come to a place to see the acceptance of what God has done. So often people throw this phrase out, you know, have you accepted Jesus as your Savior? It, it's, it's so backwards. We need to understand that Christ is the one who accepts us. He has brought us in. We live solely by faith in what he has done. This is why we come to this thing at Element we talk about every week called communion. It's meant to be a reminder of God's great grace given to us to bring us back into his family. It is why if you are so inclined, you take a cracker, a piece of bread, you dip it in wine or grape juice or drink wine and grape juice as a reminder of Christ's body that was broken and his blood that was shed. The gospel, what Christ did to bring us back into relationship with him again. We are people who rejected God. We reject one another, but God seeks us out to bring us back to himself again through his own love, through his own grace, through his own goodness that we're never going to be able to fully comprehend. And if you are someone who needs prayer today, you know, maybe you're in a spot where you, you feel like you've been judged by a lot of other people and rejected, or maybe you judge a lot of other people around you and reject them and you need to live in humbleness, or you need to live in a place of understanding uh, the great acceptance that God has over you, we would love to be able to pray with you. You can send a prayer request to prayer.element.org or connect at ourelement.org. Because we want to be those who come alongside one another and remind one another of the great love that God has for every single one of us. We are the ones who run. God is the one who chases us down, because like a good father, he loves us. If you would like to give, uh, we give simply because God has been so good to us and so generous with us, so we give as well. You can do it online. Uh, you can mail a check to Element. You know, we are people who strive to be faithful in our giving as you give to us as well. I'd also encourage you if you would get those sermon notes that go along with the message today and ask one another around you some of the questions that are in there. Talk about rejection, you know, where you feel you've been rejected, but also the acceptance that we have in Christ that is greater than our biggest rejection that God has called us into his family, into life with him. And we get to live that out in ways 
that bring glory to him as we live in the joy and the acceptance and the truth that he provides us. Let's be a people who understand first and foremost our great acceptance in him and our great salvation that has been given to us. Let's be those people. Let's pray. Father, we ask that today you would take us and and move our hearts to be honest enough about the places where we feel like we have been rejected by those around us. But I also ask that you would have us understand and see the places where we'd be honest enough about our rejection of you and the things that you have called us into. And that we then be able to take another step back and realize the great grace that we have received because of the gospel. And that because of our understanding of your great rescue of us, we would in turn begin to live different lives in the world around us. That we wouldn't be so caught up in ourselves, but we'd be caught up in the grace that you have bestowed, the love that you have given to us. And so we would in turn become that loving people, that grace-filled people that would take the blessings that you have bestowed upon us and we bestow those on others around us. That we would understand more and more each day how much you have done to rescue and save us, to bring us in, to call us your own. Have us walk with the understanding of our great acceptance that is greater than our biggest rejection and have us live lives of thankfulness and hope because of it. Thank you for rescuing us. Thank you for saving us. Have us live as your ambassadors to this world, proclaiming that good news. And we ask this in your son's good name. Amen.